No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. No, You Tell It is a series that switches up the storytelling. So each performer writes a true life tale and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story, giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. Kicking off the second swap from our precious show, our narrator time travels between Brooklyn and Oklahoma, where she cares for her aging mother after her father's death. Confronted with memories and physical artifacts from her past, she gains a new perspective on the hometown she had so desired to escape as her two worlds collide. Our first story is Home, written by Gail Thomas and performed by Nita Novino. As you will hear, we asked each of our storytellers to draw and present three grocery items, other than toilet paper, that have become precious to them since we last rehearsed in March. What became clear is how much we all have gained a new appreciation for basic necessities. Especially excited to hear about uh, if you want to bring Gail into ah. the spotlight, your uh, precious grocery store items. What items have taken on a new life for you since the pandemic began? There we go. So I, I this is obviously I spent a lot of time on this. Um, so I've got treats, dog treats, because I adopted a rescue puppy. Our, our dog, she's not quite, she acts like a puppy. She's got so much energy. So I, I've been getting lots of dog treats and discovering that her tastes are a little different than my last dog. And it's been a blast to have her companionship. So that's really fun. And then oatmeal, which I don't think I had bought oatmeal in like 20 years, but it's so great. Cause you know, at first when the pandemic hit and I was like, I'm going to be trapped in my apartment for months and months and I won't be able to go anywhere. It's like, oh, oatmeal, that's what people get. And I really like oatmeal, so I'm continuing to buy it. And I think it's a new thing in my life because it's pretty tasty. And now I've tried different kinds. And so now I'm becoming more refined. And then olives, because the other thing I've sort of rewarded myself with pandemic wise is I've been ordering out pizza more. And there's great, I live in Brooklyn and there's like great pizza everywhere. But then I also have pizza in the fridge. I love pizza. So, but often I like to put extra olives on my pizza, regardless of where I get it from. So I have gotten olives to put on my pizza. Nice. I love the yin and the yang of like this, like new love for oatmeal and the healthy fibers people are commenting. In yeah. the chat. And then also this idea of getting pizza and then like, like it's time for us to take ownership, right. And add some toppings. Thank you so much. Thank uh, you. I am very excited to hear our next story, uh, which is home written by Gail Thomas and will be read for us by Nita Novino. Home. Gazing out the window as the plane touches down. Flat prairie land, dry brown grass. Houses, buildings with plenty of room between. The sky goes on forever. Oklahoma really is the middle of nowhere. Growing up here, I always said that the stork made a big mistake. I'm an artist, a seeker. I don't belong in such a slow, flat, boring place. My parents insisted I go to college in Oklahoma, and as long as they paid, I stayed, like a curse. Finally, about 20 years ago, I escaped to New York City to return for the holidays, like Thanksgiving 2018. This visit was different. Walking into the living room of the family house, dad and mom's favorite chairs are gone. Their bedroom is empty. The month before, 
my sister and her husband helped my parents move into assisted living just a few blocks away. My dad's health issues blossomed into hospital visits and now he needs help with socks, showers and shopping. Mom was blunt. I'm just not good at being a nurse. She fought the move for a year and dad went along with it as he did everything she wanted. I love this house. I'm gonna die here. Mom would tell us three kids, the neighbors and anyone who would listen. She said, he can move. I'll stay here. She moved with him. She calls him her brain. I'm excited to have the house to myself. My room and bed are still there with all those pictures of little girls staring into space, sometimes looking at a lone bird. Mom says the girls are me. I am now free to make toast without commentary, leave glasses unwashed in the sink, delay putting the cheese away, and wander around opening drawers and cabinets. But first, I wanna check out my parents' new one bedroom apartment. Walking in, it's immediately familiar. There's dad in his green leather chair watching the news while reading the paper. Mom is pacing restlessly as she does, asking dad if he needs anything. I grab the activity calendar from the table. Mom, let's go have some fun. Bingo is 2.30 PM. Dad okays it. I'm relieved that she can remember the numbers and follow the patterns on the bingo card. We won candy. The next morning, my cell rang at 3 a.m. Mom's voice was low. Dad's breathing was really bad again. I rushed over and drove us all to the ER. Dad fought for three weeks, but that hospital visit was the last. We lost him. We were devastated, but comforted by the fact that his suffering was over. Now, we, my brother, sister, and I, focus on mom, texting each other nonstop, playing tag team with visits to mom, as none of us live in Oklahoma City anymore. Texts like, mom says she wants to move back to the house. Change the subject, she'll forget. Mom is dizzy. What meds is she on? What's that? Here's a photo of the bottle. If you do the next doctor's visit, I'll do the one after. Is there milk in the fridge? Mom needs me. I'm good at empathy and helping her find good TV shows on DirecTV. Hallmark Mysteries, Blue Bloods. My family needs me. There's something nice about that. In New York City, I live alone, working freelance. No kids, no husband, no relationship, not even a dog. No consistent conversations with any one person. Until now. I started spending lots of time in Oklahoma. I talked to my Oklahoma City high school pals more than my New York City friends. They laughed at me when I pushed forcefully through revolving doors at a local Mexican restaurant. Oh right, it's not Midtown Manhattan, my urban intensity out of place under the wide slow skies of Oklahoma. I sort of slowed down, slightly. Played more bingo. After months of resisting, mom finally conceded and made a new and best friend, Patty. They check on each other. Patty helps mom with her iPhone. The four to 5 p.m. happy hours at assisted living were fun. I learned that the doctor and his wife were childhood friends 
only recently married after each of their spouses died, and that Dick had been a big football star at OSU. And they all have the same pharmacist at Walmart. Tuffy the dog in the bistro greets everyone. Jose the waiter has a YouTube channel showcasing his country tunes. He's a flirt, the ladies love him. I got into it. After a particularly long visit, my sister had to remind me, snap out of it. You don't live in assisted living. Where do I live? I visit Oklahoma City so often that sometimes I wake up in Brooklyn thinking that I'm still in that childhood room with mixed feelings about the discovery. It takes me a long time to adjust to being back as I begin planning the next trip. Now, when I talk to people on the urban street, they look at me funny. I remember, oh, right, New York City. In Oklahoma, friendly people stop to talk forever. I try to be patient, still thinking, why are you so slow? Why do I need to know so much about your family and the time you had rats in the garbage? I wanted to run like before, until I didn't. I got used to driving again, though the distance between mom's assisted living and the house is easily walkable. Then, about nine months after dad's death, came the diagnosis that we expected. Mom scored 13 out of 30 on the dementia test. Not good. Her social skills are strong as ever, but she's asked me a hundred times if I've ever watched Blue Bloods. Yes, mom, with you. Yes, I like Tom Selleck. Unable to drive now, mom snaps at us. I'm trapped like a cage animal. At least she, comes, she had come to terms with the fact that none of us are moving back to Oklahoma City, though I thought about it for a minute. She won't move to New York City, doesn't like Yankees. So it's time for mom to move to Denver to be closer to my sister. She seems to agree. I need to be near family. Trips to the house are increasingly practical now. There's so much stuff to deal with. The memory part, photo weekend. My siblings and I gather with photo boxes from Michael's organizing. The 2000s, late 1990s, reminders of when my nephews and nieces were born. My sister's first two marriages, my bald head, my dog, the dining room table, the backyard, the previous house, my old college notebooks, photos, Europe, grade school, high school and college yearbooks. Why had I returned from Europe? Look how happy I was. And the Alps. Why had I returned from Europe? Why had I broken up with that guy? Why didn't I lose my virginity sooner? Why aren't I as confident, as young, as optimistic? The scavenger part was a journey into the mind of my parents. Dad's endless receipts in endless grocery bags. Mom's crystal, china, jewelry, the shop. Mom still had an antique shop, her excuse to buy silver and talk to people. She loved her stuff so much that most things were overpriced. She didn't want to part with it. Rings and $100 bills hidden in drawers. 
corners of the closet. God, she loves silver bracelets, filigree rings, and old watches that need repair, all long forgotten. Everything piled into the guest room, as mom called it, though no guest could possibly stay there. Kay called it the junk room, then decided that was too cruel and settled on the inventory room. We each choose a focus for a particular visit. My sister likes to look at the fancy stuff and dad's receipts. Rich deals with the car and the termite inspector. One Saturday night, I work until 3 a.m. on mom and dad's medicine cabinet. Over 15 boxes of allergy medicine and itch cream. Who knew? I throw out all the vaginal lubricants, so weird but leave the travel shampoos and pain medication and one or two of everything else. I pretend that they may be needed there again. Maybe it's easier in stages. One visit, I found a box of dad's letters to his parents from when he was stationed in France for the Korean War, 1952 to 53. His small town Texas voice bleeds through the pages as he writes about the weather agreeing with his dad that he should, have, he should leave the base more often. He writes to his mom that he always compares potential wives to her. And he probably, he'll probably wind up with one who can't even open a can. I read that one to mom. She laughed. The greed part was my least favorite. What do you want? Nothing. I like having stuff there. Now it is... Mom says, take what you want. I suggest a chart. My sister prefers a free-for-all. Okay, so what do I want? Ugh. Okay, if not now, what about in five years after mom is gone? Sure, I need furniture. There's a lovely dresser in my room, some antique end tables, that deco lamp, and the painting of a little girl staring into space. Mom says, that's me but I live in New York, it's just too far. I'm in awe of how much taste my mom has. I want to slow down. I want time to slow down. I sent an email making a pitch to my sister and brother. Let me have dad's letters. As it gets closer to the big move day, I feel an unexpected sadness. I tell my Uber driver that this might be my last visit to Oklahoma. I have my last meal with high school friends, fajitas as usual. I always hated Oklahoma and resented being trapped there. Still, it was always there for me, the only house that I had left in my life, the only backyard, my only legit connection to the suburbs, a part of me that I needed more than I realized. The move weekend, about 13 months after dad's death. The house is full of family for the first time since his memorial service, where no one gave a speech. I guess we were too sad to talk. It's comforting to watch my niece and goddaughter wrap mom's favorite red glasses and silver wine goblets. My grandparents' beautiful oak table and matching hutch was strategically placed in the front yard as furniture crisscrossed from mom's assisted living apartment to the house, to her future home, in Denver. Kay would get the table. Ah, 
Dad's green leather chair was tucked back in the van, also bound for Denver. Using the front yard was my idea, which my sister admitted was smart. Or did she say brilliant? We New Yorkers know how to be practical with space. Two days later, mom moved into her new apartment in a high rise assisted living in the mile high city. Mom says people are different, not as friendly, Yankees and Democrats. Bingo has lost its appeal. She misses Oklahoma, her old friends and Patty, but the exercise classes look better. I tell her that I miss Oklahoma too. I do too. Her bravery, losing a husband, a home, a city. I still have mom in some of her stuff. The next holiday will be, not be in Oklahoma. Suddenly I'm back in Brooklyn, my only home now, sitting on the blue velvet couch left behind by an old roommate, gazing at childhood memories, surrounded by boxes and half unpacked suitcases. I look at the items that I've begun to integrate into my living room. My worlds are merged into one. Mom's wooden jewelry box, dad's letters, my first horse statue, Misty, has a broken chain link mane and a crack down his back. My childhood painting, green and yellow flowers. They gave me art classes to keep me from staring into space. I snuck out childhood photos and faced the photo where I sit at two years old on my grandma's porch, my furrowed brow already creased, creasing from thinking, staring into space. Kay says, you are an old soul. Damn right. I might not, might not exactly be on the right track now. I might not be in my real home, the home of my heart. But I hope that all these things that I've done and all this reflection, I just hope. I hope that now that my childhood goods are united with me and my grown-up stuff, maybe I can be united inside as well. We're not in Oklahoma anymore. Switching it up, our next storyteller reminisces on a ritual slaughter and roast in her Filipino community in Alaska, conjuring her fear and resistance to a cultural norm. An homage to the gradual influence of tradition and its impact on one's identity and the collectives. Our second story, Gathering, 1973, was written by Nita Novino and performed by Gail Thomas. Welcome Nita back because the last story this evening, Switching It Up, was written by her uh, and is going to be performed by Gail. But first, I want to hear your, your grocery show and tell what has become precious to you. I know when we had rehearsals the other night, you had the big steaming bowl of noodles. What is it? Yeah, uh, the noodles have returned. <laughs> I was like, grocery, who goes to the grocery? I get takeout. This is New York. Um, so I, but then I thought, well, okay. Uh, yeah, I, I really do support our local restaurants. So I wanted to say that. And so this is a bowl, bowl of ramen. Uh, I don't, I just lack markers or any colored. Uh, I have a red pen, a blue pen and a black pen. <laughs> 
Um, so this is supposed to be ramen, but of course it could also be soup. I do get cans of soup. I'm all about right now convenience and because I teach, I just don't want to spend time cooking. Um, uh, this is the ever coveted coffee in the morning. That's probably about what I'll do. I'll make coffee in the morning. And then these are frozen food. This is my refrigerator yeah. and the freezer section with all my frozen goods, which includes, I can't read from backwards here, but like wa frozen waffles, uh, ice cream, of course, uh, peas, frozen vegetables, basically. Um, so that much I can do. If you can stick it in a microwave or uh -huh. in a pot, like it'll boil up really quickly. Um, <laughs> then there you have it. There's my convenience right there. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. It's been so wonderful seeing all of your faces again. Uh, it's so funny to go from like the in-person meetings all those months ago to now being on the Zoom. But it's also interesting too to see that, you know, it kind of feels like in a way that we've been stuck in place, but hearing the stories again, just also realizing how much movement has been in everyone's lives, even from the little detail of Gail now having the new beautiful little puppy and uh, Heather mentioning her fiance, who's now her husband as they married on zoom and uh and just yeah it's just been really lovely and a gift to see you all again and maybe i'm just prolonging things now because i don't want the last story to start but it has to start because finally we are going to hear gathering 1973 which was written by nita and bringing her back it's going to be performed by gail gathering 1973 it's a pig again Last summer, it was a goat led by a rope around its neck. I don't remember who held the knife then, but recall moments in the scene. A streak of silver across the throat, a gush of red pouring into a large bowl, the last gurgling cry. I turn away from the window to see my mother busy in the kitchen with the other women, chopping and frying, oil splattering. Dishes covered in foil on the kitchen table, preparation before celebration a familiar scene in my Filipino community in Ketchikan, Alaska. The butchering committee stands in the front yard, voices directing and confident, an hour before noon as the July sun climbs a cloudless sky. Two pairs of hands hold down the jittery animal. Others watch with crossed arms, nodding and chatting, laughter rising high above the forest treetops. I peer out from behind the sheer curtains of the living room window. The men occupy our small town, a grass, a bright green summer green. A few feet away on the other side of the swing set where they tied the animal stands a metal barrel used to burn my family's garbage. Small mounds of refuge stretching beyond it, a topographical map of scraps and tired magazines, plastic odds and ends, and whatever else metal and fireproof remainders of old dreams and no longer of use. Today though, the fire is burning elsewhere. Like the first time it happened, I run into my parents' bedroom closet and kneel under my father's hanging suits until the slaughter is over. My hands clapped over my ears so hard, creating an airtight seal, though I can hear it still a ceaseless squealing that makes my heart beat faster. The closet smells of mothballs and my father's shined leather shoes. I stare into a dark corner. The pig's cries follow me there, 
haunting me like a ghost. Then, silence. Here I remain for a few more minutes under the shelter of my father's suits and a history of survival I have yet to learn. I'm not alone. The Virgin Mary stands on top of a cabinet next to my father's closet. In a light blue robe and a white head covering, she gazes down at me, smiling gently, a small brown serpent frozen in mid-glide by her feet. This statue gives me the creeps, and I'm scared of the dark and places where monsters hide and statues come to life to eat children. Slowly, I return to the living room, to business as usual in the kitchen. I dare myself to look out the window again feel goosebumps on my arms even though I've seen this before. The gutted pig mounted whole on a metal pole, its legs wrapped tightly together with thick wire and roasting over an open fire in the fireplace my father constructed from stones and cement. The men of the committee, my uncles and fathers, stand in shifts to turn the animal over the fire until its skin is charred, meat cooked to tenderness. One of them tossles my hair as I walk by. I circle the swing set where the animal had been tied earlier. Spatters of blood stain the outcrop of rock and patches of grass. By mid-afternoon, the pig is displayed on the kitchen table with an apple wedged in its mouth. Soon after, it is partitioned like countries on a map and doled out from a serving tray. When the pig comes to the table in this form, absent of fur and eyes, motionless, silent, my sympathy fades. It's not the same animal. The sheen of its skin is like plastic, yet out of something akin to respect for a dead pet, I refuse to eat the meat. You don't want to try? Asks one of my aunts. Not even a little bit? I shake my head. Instead, the crunchy skin of one, two, and three lumpias crumble in my mouth. Inside each of them is the savory onion of shredded cabbage, carrots, and ground pork, prepared and rolled the night before in an aunt's kitchen. This pork I will eat. The stable mound of sticky rice tempers the garlic and onion. I fork ponced noodles onto my plate too. When I return to the table, three more, or more dishes appear, and I find myself immersed in the swirl of women's instructions in English as they speak amongst themselves and Iogado and Tagalog. Nita, have some more rice. Magong, eat the tomatoes with the bagoon. The green beans are good. Try them. Ito a masarap. Don't be a picky eater. Picky? Maybe it's my American tongue is because my American tongue is winning. I choose to eat hot dogs. I would choose to eat hot dogs and spaghetti every day if I could over fish head or tripe soup. Though the beef tongue sandwich my mom stuffs in my lunchbox, which passes for a thick slice of Oscar Mayer bologna is delicious. Some things pass muster, others not. Soon convenience makes its way into my diet. Oscar Mayer bologna replaces the beef tongue in my sandwiches for lunch. And when my mother starts working, I make my own frozen dinners. Not right now, though. 
Right now, I'm enjoying food made by strong, precious hands and taste-tested to be masarab. These numerous aunts and uncles chatting and laughing, standing in the kitchen and sitting in the living room are not actual blood relatives, but that is how I address these older Filipinos who are close friends of the family. Many are Nangong and Ningongs or grand godfathers and godmothers, but the English and Filipino titles are interchangeable in my mind. Uncles Pete, Eddie, Vincent, Mateo, and Joe, aunts Eleanor, Theodora, Priscilla, Anastasia, and Clara. They have children of their own. Those around my age play with my sister and me in the yard. Then we chase each other down the dirt road and hide behind the tall, broad patches of stinky skunk cabbage leaves on the roadside like little creatures in Richard's scary storybooks. Huckle cats and lowly worms on an adventure. In the front yard, the men relax with their plate of food or can of Rainier beer in hand. They talk of the salmon they've caught so far that season, of the rising cost of gasoline, of the latest news from relatives in the Philippines. My sister and I sit on the swings. Bellies full, we rocket in the air, strengthening, straightening our bodies like planks of wood so our heads skim this grass on the downswing. Someone is hosed off the pig blood from the ground. Marcos is like a king now, remarks Uncle Pete. He has been president for eight years, my dad exclaims. He works in a post office as a janitor and maintenance man during the week. On the weekend, he plays rummy with the uncles in the back room of the Diaz Cafe. He and Uncle Pete smoke cigars while Aunt Matt talks excitedly about the moves and footwork of Muhammad Ali. Matt was a boxer in the Philippines. I've seen a photograph of his younger self in boxing gloves and shiny shorts, a different man then. All of these men around the table were, they play cards long into the night. Surrounded by a thickening wall of cigar smoke, it's pungent peppery odor filling every corner of the room. Dictator Marcos, Uncle Pete clarifies, in his third term, Aye, all of the po these politicians are corrupt, Uncle Matt observes. They just want to line their pockets, comrades. Yeah, but the roads are better, and there's more electricity in the villages, my father claims. And more schools, that's all Marco's doing. But there are no jobs, Matt argues. Families back home, they are all still poor. And they're stealing the money we mail back home to the family. You can't trust the post office. Not even this man's martial law will stop the thieves, Uncle Pete insists, wearing, waving away a mosquito from his ear. He lives in a trailer with his wife, my Aunt Eleanor, a white woman, and their chubby son, Pete Jr., who's a year younger than me. I listen to the committee's conversation as my sister and I continue our daring swings. Much of what they say about the Philippines escapes me. Martial law, whatever it is, it doesn't sound all that good. It's a country I barely know and only then through my parents' photos. The soles of my feet kiss the sky. My sister swings harder. She's younger than me by two years and smaller than me by five inches, so she has to tiptoe to touch the ground. Her thin hair waves back and forth as she shoots upward trying to meet my swing height. 
but I have stronger, longer legs and can pump more into my swings. I am winning the swinging contest. The Filipinos, oh, oh, Filipinos will keep eating rice and butchering their pigs, Eddie declares. This uncle lives in the house next to ours. He invited my dad to build our house on his property. As long as we're fed, we're happy. Aye, look at us, Uncle Pete chides, mouthful. Sky, swing, grass, swing, dirt. We're not kings here, but we're better off, Matt surmises, even with the cold weather. A crow's squawk rises from the middle of the forest. Sky, grass, dirt. Better watch out, my father warns. You might acquire a taste for the birds here too. Better to eat a bluebird than be a jailbird, Pete says. Laughter floods the yard. Then something at the heels of this release. Relief, was it? Sadness? All in all, a disappearing mist. The silence after a prayer. Next summer, my family and I board a gigantic Pan Am airplane that flies us across the Pacific Ocean to the Philippines. There, my sister and I wilt in a thick, suffocating heat and stare at people in flip-flops or bare feet crossing the streets flooded by monsoon rains. Our relatives, so excited to see our parents, to meet their American-born children for the first time, butcher a pig and roast it to celebrate our arrival. Did I recognize this as a familiar scene then? No, they're all strangers and I'm a stranger in a strange land. My sister and I yelp and then I complain and then she complains because we can't sleep, because it's too hot, because the food tastes weird, because of the bugs. We've never seen cockroaches before. I returned home from this trip unaware how memories can be stored away to appear out of the blue in refractions, in re-memories. 40 years later, at another pig roast while visiting my aunt's village on the island of Mitigado, or during dinners with Filipino-American friends in New York City, my home of the last 26 years, mimicking our parents' accents, joking in puns, lamenting and growling about the current strong-arm president of the Philippines, whose nickname is the Punisher, and passing plates of roast pork and white rice around the table. Every feast and grief turned into connective tissue. But not yet. It's still 1973, and I'm a kid, swinging higher and higher. Not my sister though. She's grown tired of this contest and comes to a full stop. I'm thirsty, she declares before darting across the lawn back into the house. I jump off the swing too and stroll toward the fireplace. The metal spit that once held a pig for this ritual of sacrifice and communion now lies bare atop the low stone walls. I lean over the fireless pit feel the heat on my face and blow gently on the smoldering briquettes. These scenery remains, gray-black lumps, flicker like bright orange gems, like a sudden burst of life, a resurrection under my breath.
Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.